This is an RNZ podcast. Here we are, final moments, and uh, we got a got what we needed for Alan and for the family and for everybody, really. I mean, this is not just a, a win for us, it's a win for the nation. That was Jeff Hall speaking to reporters on Wednesday once it was official that the Supreme Court had cleared his brother Alan, quashing his conviction for the murder of Arthur Easton in Papakura back in 1985. Alan was 23 when he was first arrested for that, and now he's been cleared at the age of 60. But Wednesday's news wasn't a surprise for those who knew about the case and the problems with it. Two days before, the Crown admitted that Hall shouldn't have been convicted because police had hidden vital evidence from the defence years ago before the trial. And the Crown had already admitted back in April, in submissions to the Queen against Alan Russell Hall, that this was a trial gone wrong. And this was the verdict Alan Hall's lawyer Nick Chisnell gave to News Hub outside the court on Wednesday. Miscarriage of justice is a miscarriage of justice, but I've never seen as clear-cut a case in my career as this one. Police and Crown Law have both launched their own reviews now into the investigation and the court case respectively. And in an article about the case in the Listener magazine last month, lawyer Nick Chisnell also said, it's hard to get a case over the line where a miscarriage of justice is so obvious. But how could that be, with not just lawyers on the case for years, but also investigators like Tim McKinnell, a former police inspector and an expert in wrongful convictions, and investigative journalists like Phil Taylor, who wrote that Listener article, and several others from 2011 onwards when he worked for the New Zealand Herald. Now back then, Phil Taylor reported on a key piece of evidence, a statement from a passing motorist, parts of which would have cast doubt on Hall's involvement if they hadn't been withheld. And he notes that this and other serious doubts were also aired in a podcast back in 2018. From News Hub, this is Grove Road. I'm Mike Wesley-Smith. For the past year, I've been investigating a home invasion and murder that happened on a quiet suburban street in Papakura on the night of October 13th, 1985. Well, that was an ugly sort of weapon. It didn't look as though it did you any mischief. And this series not only put new evidence and flaws about the existing evidence back into the spotlight, it also drew Tim McKinnell to the case. But when making the podcast, Mike Wesley-Smith also credited the crucial record-keeping and campaigning stamina of Alan Hall's family, who gave him a lot to go on. This is a, a book that the family kept next to the family telephone. It's information about suspects, um, suspicious cars, names, phone numbers, witness statements, every press um, clipping. Rather extraordinary letter written by Alan's brother to David Longy when he was Prime Minister. Seeing all of this in front of me, it's quite daunting. Um, you realise that 33 years of hard work has been put in already to this case. But is this week's Supreme Court decision a vindication of the investigative journalism into Alan Hall's case, or is it really an illustration of its limits? Because it still took so long for the right result to be reached in court this week. I mean, I'm really proud of the work that um, the team I was part of uh, did on Alan's case, and that included my producer, Maggie Wix, and our um, editor, Asher Bastian, you know, without which none of that podcast would have been possible. And there does seem to be a pattern of um, some of New Zealand's worst miscarriages of justice involving a, um, an unlikely team journalist or journalists that kind of work in concert or at least alongside defendant or their legal team. And it's often that kind of um, joint pressure that is what's necessary to get these big um, or long-standing problematic convictions overturned. Yes, I mean, you did a whole eight-part series on this back in 2018. Uh, Phil Taylor, uh, when he was at the New Zealand Herald, was writing about this case more than 10 years ago. 
Brian Bruce, um, the television documentary maker, he featured that in a series back in 2009, concluded one of the first cases he examined where he was sure uh, the person was innocent. Even Pat Booth, who helped expose the miscarriage of justice uh, that befell Arthur Allen Thomas, they all raised concerns about this. Indeed, in your series, you have Brian Edwards on Radio Pacific 30 years ago uh, talking about the case and the problems with it. Does it actually show, you know, the limits of the media that it took so long to get the right result, even though there there were so many journalists who down the years did dedicate a lot of time to it? Yeah, no, it's a really good point. I, you know, when I came across um, that, that old radio program and Brian had on the same program, um, Arthur Allen Thomas's father, I believe, um, you know, this convergence of these two cases was, it was just really extraordinary audio. One of the most enduring mysteries about Alan's case is how obvious the problem with it was. Um, you know, it never was at the time back in 1985, nor is it now, ever been okay for a prosecutor or a defence lawyer to just unilaterally change a witness's statement because they don't believe a certain material aspect is reliable. And so I think that's why so many journalists were drawn to the case because it just seemed, what was wrong with it just seemed so obvious. Nick Chisnell, the lawyer, told Phil Taylor in the Listener article published last month, um, this extraordinary quote, he said, um, it's my feeling that it's hard to get a case over the line where a miscarriage of justice is so obvious. And um, I mean, that sounds just so counterintuitive to me from the outside. But I guess having worked on it, you kind of know what he means. Oh, look, absolutely. And it's not that hard to find the reporting down the years on Ellen's case, which almost always have focused on, you know, the central problems with it, which was quite rightly the focus of the Supreme Court hearing. From a media perspective, what it's revealed to me is that all of these institutions, um, the prosecutors, the police, the Ministry of Justice who administer our prerogative of mercy application, they all consume media too. They have communications teams who are constantly looking at what the media is reporting on. But what it shows is that it doesn't seem that any of those institutions or the people within them who consume those news reports ever thought that actually what was being reported might be something that they should act on. And no one ever in those institutions thinking, wow, is there anything that we could do about this? And I was, yeah, really flummoxed as to why um, it didn't animate those institutions in the way it did journalists and, and other observers. Well, investigative reporter Mike White has spent a lot of time on wrongful conviction cases. He's even written guidelines for other journalists to help them uh, embark upon um, projects like this. And I remember him telling me, look, these are cases, these are journalistic projects like no other, and you really have to stop and think before you decide to go all in on them. Because he said, once once you start, you don't quite know where it's going to take you and what evidence you might end up having to reconsider. And he kind of said, and if you're being a fair journalist, you worry that you might end up just kind of amplifying doubts about it. Uh, was that something that you had to think about before you went um, all in on this case? For sure. I mean, I have a lot of um, respect for Mike and, and like with Phil Taylor, you know, his reporting was always provided a really useful template for journalists like me, you know, junior, more junior journalists as to how to approach these type of cases and to do it responsibly, knowing that, you know, there are, you know, people's lives um, at the core of it, particularly, obviously, the victim, Arthur Eason's family, and then, of course, the Hall family. Um, and, and you don't, and you obviously want to, as much as possible, stick to that middle lane as, of, of impartial journalism and not become a, not descend into being a unquestioning advocate for one side 
or the other. And for me, the, the, the safest way I could orientate myself in that direction was to focus on the fairness of Alan's trial, which is um, something that should be a shared concern for both the prosecution and the defence and the judiciary and the public. You know, everyone um, wants those processes to work the way that they're designed to work. And so in all my reporting and, and, and in trying to convince people, you know, ex-police officers, lawyers to talk to me, I made that, I, I wanted to make that clear that I wasn't, I wasn't here at the behest of, um, of Alan or his family. And in fact, in the podcast that, you know, I reported on evidence that pointed towards him. Um, mm. And I thought that was really important um, to, to be genuine about that um, and to help, um, you know, yeah, just make sure that I, I stayed within the, the proper lanes of, of, a, of a journalist approaching a case like this. One of the interesting things about your podcast series is the process being on show, which I guess is one of the benefits of that podcast format rather than the kind of definitive documentary or, you know, feature article in print. But at one point, you even said that it literally made you feel ill to have to question police officers and, and legal officials about this. I'll be honest, I think what probably caused me the most anxiety, um, Colin, was knowing that going down this road would cause some level of distress to Arthur Eason's family. I was always struck by the um, respectful letters I had back. That was how we communicated. And not to give a, a definitive view either way, but simply say, look, you know, this was a terribly traumatic episode in our life. It remains so. And we placed our trust in the criminal justice system. And that was the process that we, that they, you know, thought should, should determine this one way or the other. That probably is what weighed on me most. Um, at the end of the day, um, one has to do an exercise like this without fear or favour. In the end, I chose to do what I did. Mm, indeed, and another thing Mike White said, I remember, is that often the people that are suffering miscarriages of justice, and, and this is unrelated to the case of um, Alan Hall in particular, but often people in this position are imperfect people. Um, you know, and the way he put it, I think, was not not often uh, natural candidates for sympathy. Um, uh, was that a, a problem for you? Because I mean, it, it is almost impossible not to have sympathy for um, Alan's situation, you know, given the, the disadvantages he had in the process right from the start. It, Mike is completely right. It, it is a very common feature of people who are the um, victims of miscarriages like this, not just in New Zealand, but I think worldwide, that they tend to have something about them that is inherently vulnerable, but also they are maybe at the periphery of society in terms of those where they're just completely swept away by the justice system and you know if they ever you know are able to climb, you know clamber out of that powerful tide I mean the thing about Alan's family is just how and I don't mean this in a pejorative sense but just how ordinary they were Alan and his brothers when they were first questioned by police you know they didn't clamber to have a lawyer because they didn't have any reason to believe that the police would act in any you know in any way but honestly that that, that question of trust is common to both the Hall and the Eastern family you know that both of them you know, have said that how that trust was so fundamentally betrayed. This is all going to be reviewed now. There'll be a, a review of police investigations and uh, the court process. But but I wonder, we do have a Criminal Cases Review Commission. Uh, it, it has had a lot of applications uh, since it was set up. But is this something where the media can actually play a role? Maybe reporters dedicated to following the cases passing through that commission 
just bring those cases to public attention uh, so that when there are outcomes like this, you know, people can't say they were surprised and, you know, they'll know all about it. I think the, the establishment of the Criminal Cases Review Commission was a fantastic addition to the New Zealand justice system. Um, in England, they've had one for going on probably 25, 30 years. But I'm, I will forever be of the view that there will always be a place um, for um, journalists in that watchdog capacity um, of our justice system, because how, however many checks, I think, you, institutional checks you put in place, um, I just don't think it will ever capture all of those cases that um, need to be kind of brought to light. And there's something about, you know, the freedom with which uh, a journalist given enough time by their bosses has to just simply um, pursue the truth, wherever that truth may take them. Of course, there's always increasing pressures on newsrooms and budgets and and their abilities to dedicate as much time as I was able to to, to this um, case. But there will absolutely always be a need for journalists to be vigilant watchers of the court process. You know, there are so many fantastic journalists operating now, uh, like Mike White, like Phil Taylor, and, and many, many others that um, it gives me every confidence. Yeah, journalists will continue to play a, a really important role in bringing miscarriages of this uh, kind to light. Yeah, and especially maybe the ones that are taking too long to resolve. There's a kind of inertia uh, and you know, different stages where you know, appeals are failing and the process has to restart. If journalists are able to highlight those ones where, where they think there's a case and keep those alive, it might have an impact. And while we're on this, um, the podcast form is you know, something that's obviously come up during the last 10 or 12 years or so. It's become a form, and there's a real public interest and appetite, particularly in cold cases and true crime and so on at times it feels a little ghoulish to me but in this case where you know it has allowed you hasn't it an almost kind of open field to get an awful lot of detail about one case in a form that the public seem to um, be interested in that you might struggle if it was to be you know say one single documentary or a, or a long written piece that people may or may not read yeah definitely and look you know having simultaneously covered Alan's case in both a television format and an audio format it's just it's just that bit less intrusive. So on that basis alone, it's it's such a, a a useful medium to use for investigations of this kind. I I genuinely would not have done a podcast on Alan's case unless I thought from the outset I could it would do some actual good. To me, it wasn't enough that it was just simply telling Alan's story. Knowing that it would cause old wounds to be opened, I felt it brought with it a, a, an obligation to uncover new evidence. So, I mean, I know, you know, I'm conscious that there are podcasts out there and, and you know, they've just exploded in the last 10 years um, that will just cover a case for the sake of, of covering it. And it was really a, a really important precondition that I, um, knowing there would be a human cost, an emotional cost um, that against that I could balance an obligation or a, or a reasonable belief that I could uncover new evidence, which fortunately we were able to do. And and, and have some influence on, on bringing about the right, right conclusion. That was Mike Wesley-Smith, who produced and presented the podcast series Grove Road about the murder of Arthur Easton in 1985 and the flawed case against Alan Hall, whose conviction for it was finally quashed last Wednesday by the Supreme Court.